The Old Testament reading for today comes from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard a cry. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading for today comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and still I find none, cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, oh, you are a father to us, which means that we are your children. And um, we thank you that though we often behave as children do, um, we don't listen to you. Um, we, we, we complain about what you have given us. We're distracted by many things yet you are patient with us, yet you love us, yet you still show us mercy and kindness. And we ask, humbly ask in this moment, that yet you would give us more mercy and more grace to open our eyes and our ears, to see you, to understand you more. You would transform our hearts in the seeing of you, in the, the hearing of your word, and in the eating of the sacrament that you have given us. We thank you that you call us every week into to worship, to, to lay down our work, to rest in you. And we pray that you would restore us through this act of worship. It's what you created us to do. 
And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to fill this place and that you would stir our affections to, to, to love you more, to worship you more. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, during this season of Lent, we're, we're looking at, um, we're spending our time looking at some of the hard things that Jesus had to say that were captured for our reading pleasure in the Gospel of Luke. And this morning, Jesus addresses some of the uh, self-justifying accusations that are often made against those who have suffered some form of tragedy. All right, last Sunday in Luke 12, just a few verses before our passage this morning, we heard Jesus say that he had come to bring fire to earth. Right? In saying this, he introduced the, the topic of judgment. Jesus was a, a controversial figure. To some, he was and is too gracious. To others, he was and is hateful and intolerant. Such conclusions, though, only reveal the, the fickleness and the error of the human heart. These conclusions say more about the people drawing them than they do about Jesus. They are, therefore, the basis of, of judgment, the basis of future judgment. Those who condemn Jesus as a bigot, right, are, are speaking words of condemnation against themselves, and their own words are the basis of their condemnation. With judgment on their minds, and, and now on ours as well, we turn to our passage this morning, where in verse 1, someone from the crowd tells Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Right? So it's unclear to us what historical event they were referring to. There's no surviving account of it for us, but we don't need a historical account to, to reconstruct a basic understanding of the event. It appears that some Galileans had come to Jerusalem, that's where Pilate was, they'd come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, and that Pilate had murdered them. And you had them murdered as they were in the very act of offering sacrifice so that their blood was mingled with the blood of the animals they were offering as sacrifice. And such a reconstruction actually fits rather well with the character of Pilate, who was a, a brutal man. Jesus was told about this story, and he perceives the reason why he is told the story. There was no question put to him in connection with the telling of this story. They're just telling it to him. But Jesus perceives that the storyteller is insinuating that these Galileans had experienced God's judgment, that this terrible thing happened to them because they had done something to, to, to deserve it. And Jesus reveals that he understood this was the reason why he was being told the story when he asked in verse 2, do you think that, these, that because these Galileans suffered in this way, that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans. And since Jesus had told them that he had come to bring fire to the earth, they had judgment on their minds. And so they told him of a story they presumed was a sign of God's judgment. Based on a known tragedy, they were filling in the backstory in order to make sense of it. They most likely had never met the Galileans who suffered this terrible end, but based on the nature of their death, they extrapolated the conclusion that they must have been grievous sinners indeed. They must have deserved such a death. God must have been very displeased with them. They were connecting dots that weren't even there, drawing a direct line from the nature of their death to the sin that presumably preceded it and the presumed anger of God towards that presumed sin. In other words, they were pretending to be God, 
acting as though they had special knowledge about the, the course of history and the reasons why particular things happened to particular people in the way that they did. And I wish I could say that this sort of insinuation was a fault peculiar to the Greco-Roman world, that it was a, a tendency of the ancients that did not survive into the modern age, but such is unfortunately not the case, right? We've all experienced this. I mean, after Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Katrina left 1,392 people dead, over $125 billion worth of damage to the city of New Orleans in 2005. And some Christians drew similar conclusions, saying that the hurricane was God's judgment. The city and the people of New Orleans deserved this. They had it coming, right? Not even Jesus went there. They apparently had not read Luke's story. Not even Jesus went there when he was presented with the story of the Galileans and Pilate. Nor did he go there after bringing up the story about the seven people in Siloam Springs who died in a tragic accident when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. He posed the same question about that story in verse four. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? Did the tower fall on them because their sins were particularly numerous and grievous? His answer to both questions was emphatic. No, I tell you, no. It wasn't because they were more sinful than anybody else that they died those tragic deaths. His answer is a contradiction and a rebuke of anyone who might say otherwise. Human beings have no business pretending that they know the mind of God in these matters. When presented with tragedies, it's not our responsibility to offer an explanation for why it happened. There's freedom in that, freedom that we should enjoy. Instead, Jesus advocates for a different response, a much more humble response to tragedy. As New Testament theologian Joel Green observes, Jesus' reply does not deny sin its consequences, nor that sin leads to judgment. Instead, he rejects the theory that those who encounter calamity have necessarily been marked by God as more deserving of judgment than those who do not. In other words, without denying that there are consequences for sin, Jesus recommends a different way of looking at tragedy. Jesus wants us to view tragedy as an opportunity for penitence. In response to each story in our passage, Jesus first denies that the victims suffered tragedies because they were more sinful than anyone else. He then follows that up, though, with a call to penitence. In verse 3, unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. And in verse 5, he says the same thing. Unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. He does two things here. By declaring the victims of tragedy no more guilty than anyone else, he's first reminding their accusers of their own guilt. Regardless of how much we would like to, to separate ourselves from others through insinuation and judgment, Jesus is putting all of humanity in the same position. He's leveling the playing field before him. He maintains that the victims of these tragedies were no doubt guilty of sin and on that account deserving of death, but in that way, they are no different from anybody else. Everyone's in that position, guilty of sin, deserving of death. He provides no reason for their death because that's not supposed to be a concern of ours. That's for God alone to know. 
And after leveling the playing field before him, declaring everyone guilty, and foregoing any explanation for these particular tragedies, Jesus then leaves his audience and us with the certainty of death and the need for penitence. He leaves us exposed and staring death in the face. If their death wasn't an act of judgment, then we are exposed to the possibility of a similar end. Tragedy can strike at any point. And there's an urgency that is introduced at this point in the passage, an urgency to to clear oneself before God, an urgency to to clean up your life, to to produce fruit. The story of the, the fig tree that Jesus tells on the heels of his call to penitence is supposed to further strengthen this sense of urgency. The story goes that for three years, the fig tree had failed to produce any fruit. And the man who had planted it in his vineyard was ready to cut it down. At this point, it was only taking up space in his vineyard, space that could benefit other fruit-bearing trees. Only at the insistence of the gardener was he willing to give it one more year. The gardener would dig around it in order to get more oxygen in the soil, and he would fertilize it with manure. But if none of those interventions proved helpful, after one more year, then even the gardener agreed that the tree must be removed. Augustine helps us to understand this parable. He writes, the tree is the, this tree is the human race. The Lord visited this tree in the time of the patriarchs as if for the first year. He visited it, visited it in the time of the law and the prophets as if for the second year. Here we are now with the gospel, the third year has dawned. Jesus tells us, to, tells us this story to inform us that it is in this last year extended and lengthened for our sakes that we are living, living in a time of grace. And Jesus is looking for fruit in us. It is the the parabolic echo of what John the Baptist had already taught in Luke 3, where he said, even now the ax is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What is this fruit that Jesus seeks in us? But the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Evidence that the intervention of God in our lives, tilling of the soil, the provision of manure, food, right? Fertilizer. That the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the intervention of God is beginning to transform us from within. Paul lists out this this fruit for us in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, he writes, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. The appearance of these things is evidence of our faith, and of our love for God. These things give us confidence in our present redemption and hope for our future salvation. And I ask you, does your life put forth this fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit? If not, why not? Right? The absence of them is the, is the cause of concern. 
As John said, even now the axe is lying at the root of the tree. This is a hard teaching from Jesus. But because he wants our motivation to goodness to always be love and gratitude, he, he, he softens our fear of him with hints of his grace. You'll remember that his, his whole passage began with someone telling, this, this, telling Jesus the story of the, the Galileans whom Pilate killed so that their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. The telling of the story insinuated that the death of the Galileans was an act of divine judgment, that they were treated this way because their sins were particularly grievous. But Jesus denied that this was the reason for, the, for, for their deaths. We've already said that his denial was intended to level the playing field between victim and accuser. However, there's, there's another reason for his denial. He did not want them thinking that Galileans who were put to death by Pilate were guilty of grievous sins. And the reason is because he himself was a Galilean. You often hear him called Jesus of Nazareth. Well, Nazareth is a city in the region of Galilee. Jesus was a Galilean, and he was headed to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice. He was headed to Jerusalem to offer himself as a sacrifice, and it would be Pilate who would authorize his crucifixion. His blood would be poured out, but it would not be mingled with the blood of any animal because he was the lamb being slaughtered. He was the only sacrifice. And he was put to death in this shameful way, not because he was guilty of any sin, but because we are. You see, Jesus died in our place. He offered himself as our sacrifice. He allowed Pilate to have authority over him. Jesus told Pilate himself that he had no authority except what was given to him by God, yet he submitted to Pilate even though he was greater than the man, and he faced death alone as a spotless lamb. We're all exposed before death. We know it is coming. We can't tell you when. And before a holy God, we are exposed as sinners, fruitless fig trees, deaf to the generational calls for penitence. And in this, in this position, we experience an urgency for something to cover us. And Jesus says, let me cover you with my blood. I will die instead of you. I will sacrifice myself for you. I will pay with my life what you are unable to pay with your own so that you might live in my grace and in my forgiveness. The love of Jesus Christ is to be our motivation in this life of penitence and of faith. And after rising victorious over the grave, he gives us something even greater, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is to be our our inspiration for the life of faith. The Holy Spirit takes up residence within the life of the believer in order, in order to produce fruit that proves our redemption. If you want to produce fruit, it's not just a matter of, of behavior modification, trying to be nicer, trying to be more joyful. It's a matter of worship. It's a matter of communing with God through the Spirit and the Word which the Spirit inspired to teach us the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. A fig tree cannot muscle the production of fruit. It's a process that happens organically from within. 
when from the soil it draws nutrients and is given new life, the same is true of you. You cannot muscle the production of fruit. It's a process that happens organically from within. When from the richness of God's word you draw truth, and by the spirit you are inspired and enabled to to love what is good and what is true and what is beautiful, and you are animated to produce fruit that is pleasing to God, that he might delay, and you might live on in his grace. You are his fig tree, and you are living in a time of grace. Let us respond to this grace 